Well, once again, good morning. My name is Fritz, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you like discipline, if you like that passage Brian read, raise your hand. Um, we don't love going through discipline, and yet, if you love getting on the other side of discipline and the deliverance that you experience, raise your hand. We love it. We need it. I was thinking this morning um, from the church retreat, every Sunday I come back limping, literally limping. And I was thinking about Jacob. If you ask Jacob during the 20 years that he was under Laban, who was basically another Jacob, who God put in Jacob's life to get the Laban out of Jacob, to get the Jacob out of Jacob, if you would have asked him during that, are you enjoying these jumping jacks and running around the street? He'd say, no. But if you look at Jacob at the end of his life, when he's leaning on his staff, praising God, and you said, Jacob, are you thankful God took you through all of that? He would say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's the loving discipline of the Lord and the concurring deliverance. So you heard it in the passage that Brian read. I'm going to read Psalm 30. We have one more psalm left next week. We're going to do Psalm 23 entitled, No Questions Asked. Just Psalm 23. But this is our last psalm with a question for the summer. A psalm of David a song at the dedication of the temple, or that can be translated house. The temple wasn't even there yet, so a lot of commentators think it may have even just been David's home. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord... You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is life. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. 
O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's again pray. God, thank you for your living word that is honest about the human condition and is honest about you, our great God. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, not just teach us what to believe, not just teach us what is right theology, but would you drive the very heart of the Bible, the gospel, deep into our hearts and souls, that we might be refreshed and renewed in the good news of your great deliverance, and that we too might praise you and invite others to do the same. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So a little known fact about me, while in college, for one semester, I was a cheerleader. Why is that funny? So I was going to try to play football at this college. Don't get too excited. It was a little small community college. But I got to tour the weight room and the football field and meet football players and I immediately realized I'm small, not very strong, and slow. I don't need to play football here, but I still had to find a way to pay for college. And I had a friend that was a cheerleader, and he said, why don't you become a cheerleader? And I said, sure. And so what do cheerleaders do? They cheer on the team. They get the fans involved. They urge the fans to get behind the team. They are enthusiastic. Sometimes it's kind of fake and they just go through the motions, but they're there to urge and encourage and, and bring life to what's going on. And I thought about that because in essence, that is what we're going to see. That's what David does. He's urging others. He's cheering them on. It's what the writer to the Hebrews was doing as they were going through afflictions and severe discipline. And he was saying, Hang in there, keep going, endure. And the very vitality that is needed for that is what David has sort of lovingly ground into him. And as we step back and just think about that for a minute, don't we want that? Don't we want that kind of vitality that really praises God like David praises God in this text, that gets more excited about God's love and deliverance than the new car I'm going to buy or the new whatever, that we really know that that's a good and beautiful thing and we want the heart that is overflowing with fruitfulness to urge and encourage others on, but we find ourselves sometimes just kind of limping along we want to be evangelistic. We want to share the good news and say, you too should cheer for God. And then we find ourselves sort of just, ah, not quite there. Well, how does David get there? That's what I want us to see this morning. That David goes through the loving discipline 
of the Lord. On the other side of that is great deliverance and praise and cheerleading. But he has to endure the loving discipline of the Lord. There are a couple ways to go about this text as far as a timeline, a chronology. Uh, you, could, you could break it up and say it's sort of this repeated deliverance. God, David is, is in verses 1 through 3 praising God for a past deliverance. And then verse 4, he urges others to do the same. And verse 5, he teaches us about God. And then he sort of gets on a high from it. And there's discipline from God. And he cries out to God and God delivers him again. Do you see the pattern in the timeline? Or it's just one big praise to God for the whole package, so to speak. In other words, it's past and present tense, but it's an overall praise from a deliverance from God. And that deliverance, in essence, is the Lord's loving discipline that he is delivered from. So either way that you take the chronology of it, what we learn here is that David's discipline is from God. And it's loving discipline. Let's look at the text for a minute. Look at verses 1 through 3. David is crying out to God for help, or he's remembering how he cried out to God for help. He has been saved, literally, from what commentators say is the brink of death. Think of the word Sheol. That was the place of the dead. Uh, he uses the phrase going down to the pit. Now, later on he talks about sackcloth and mourning. So David is on the brink of death and he's praising God for how God delivered him not only from the brink of death, but look at verse 1. He's delivering him from others rejoicing over him as he was on the brink of death. In other words, his enemies and his foes are going, ha look, see? Look at what God's doing there with David. And think about this for a minute. Which is worse when you are going through something very difficult and you are being defeated, so to speak, or you're on the brink of death, either physically or emotionally or mentally? What is worse going through that experience or having others who are against you taking joy in your defeat. Think about if you're on a sports team and you're just getting creamed. And not just the fact that you're being defeated, but the other team with terrible sportsmanship just starts jeering at you. I found myself watching a few minutes of MMA the other day. I do not like MMA if you do that and you're good at that. I, I have no idea how you're good at it. It's just the puzzlement of how they fight. I'm just like, I would die immediately. But what they do is they just wrestle you, hit you, bite you, claw you, and they get you down into what's called submission. And they're just laying on top of you, elbowing and elbowing. And, you, and, and I can just imagine being the guy on the bottom going, I can't move, I can't get up, I'm just taking these blows. And then on top of that, outside the cage, everybody's cheering against you. That's what David was going through. He was on the brink of death and his foes were going, yes, look at David. 
Look at verse 5. David considers this the discipline of the Lord. He uses the word anger. Let me explain that for a minute. The word that he uses does not mean condemnation. This is not punitive. It is not eternal. It's not God's eternal judgment upon sinful people. This is discipline. Go back to verse 3. Notice the word that he uses. God restored me. This is restorative. Discipline in the Bible is always restorative. It's God's way of reclaiming you and bringing you back. If you think about Corinthians, when they had the guy that was doing, oh, can we believe it, sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church, and they had to discipline him. And then you can imagine the church being a little hotty-totty and self-righteous and going, yeah, we're not letting him back in. He sinned too bad. And Paul says, why are you being so overbearing? He's forgiven. Restore him. See, the Lord's discipline is restorative. It is God taking us through suffering to produce what? The fruit of righteousness. We're not sure what David was going through here. The psalm does not specify. We know that David endured all sorts of difficulties and afflictions. His king Saul at the time would throw his spear at him in anger and try to kill him. He had as the king national or national enemies who tried to kill him. He lost his son who he had out of wedlock through the sin of adultery. He died. And David grieved over that son. It could possibly be when his own son Absalom rose up against him. And he had to flee Jerusalem just like Jesus. And they went after him and people that were formerly his friends and allies became his foes and jeered at him. We're not sure what it was, but it was the Lord's loving discipline. Why do we need discipline? That's really an important question. Because we don't like it, it is painful. But why do we need discipline? Generally, because there are things, and and so many of those songs we sang in the morning, uh, this morning I would encourage you to go back and read through those. It's because there are things in us, like Jacob, that don't need to remain, that need to die. And and we see this in the psalm in verses 6 through 7. There was something in David that needed to die. What was it? It was his self-sufficiency. Look at verse 6. As for me, I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. The word for prosperity means heedlessness that breeds complacency. David, again, it depends on how you take the timeline, but just imagine David being delivered. He's inviting other peoples to rejoice in this. And what tends to happen? You get on a spiritual high. Everything is great. And then you get sort of careless, heedless of how you got there. Well, David sort of knows here, verse 7, by your favor, O Lord. That's how I got here. But look what he says. 
My mountain stood strong. Whose mountain? Do you see what happened? God, by your favor, my mountain stood strong. It's subtle. You can hear David's pride and his self-sufficiency, his self-assurance and his self-confidence. It's like the guy that, that you know, is praising God and giving God credit for you know, his skills before the game and telling people, I'm just so glad God has gifted me. And he gets the touchdown and he's running and he just starts jeering and he puts the ball out and he fumbles it right before he scores. It's the same kind of thing. God blesses us, He gifts us, and we, we turn it into self-sufficiency and self-assurance. What does God do? Look at verse 7. He hides His face, and David is dismayed. The word means terrified, shaken. It's the same word in 1 Samuel 28 when Saul, who has been rejected as king by God and is not hearing from God anymore, he's not hearing the word of the Lord, so he seeks out a medium, someone between him and God. And so he goes to the witch of Endor, and Samuel appears and says, what are you doing calling on me? God ain't talking to you anymore, bro. In fact, this is what he's going to say to you. If you really want to know, you're going to die, your son's going to die, and your army's going to be defeated. Woo! And you know what it says? Saul was greatly dismayed. So this is serious business. And yet what we see here, and remember, this is David in retrospect, not necessarily while he's going through it. This is David after he's been delivered, looking back and going, boy, I needed that. I needed that. He wants us to see the necessity of the loving discipline to get at our false security. I can think in my own life, I'm 51 years of age, we have, well, I always say you start raising your kids when they leave the house, but we've sort of raised five kids together. And we can think of ways that God has used every child to get at our self-sufficiency, often tied to that child. In January of 2003, my wife uttered a prayer. And when she was done praying, I said, you shouldn't have prayed that. I will never pray that with you. You're like, oh, you're a great pastor and husband. Well, this is what she prayed. We were at a season where we were going through challenges. Going through relational challenges, but in particular with our children. And she uttered this prayer. She said, Lord, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. And I just went, Say that. That was January of 2003. In February of 2003, as many of you know that have been around, our six-year-old son pulled a TV on his head. And then 
I can only say this in retrospect. And then our youngest son was born, and he was in the NICU for two weeks. And then a month later, a tree fell on our house, and I looked at her and said, why did you pray that? And she came up with this quote that we have been saying, well, I don't like to say it, but if God loves you, he will mess up your life. And I know that some of you don't want to be Christians because of this. Because you see it in the cross. Jesus says, I take up my cross for you. And the response of that is that you take up your cross. Because these momentary afflictions actually get at your false crosses and your false security and your self-sufficiency. And yet you and I both know, because many of you have been through your own things that you could list, and you look back in retrospect and you go, I hated it at the time. It was painful. But now I see some things needed to go. And God is good. It is the loving discipline of the Lord. I want you to think just a moment application-wise. What is it right now that you can look back on in retrospect and praise God for. And like David, I would love you to take some time this week and say, honey, take the kids. I need to be away for an hour. I don't need a margarita. I need to sit with the Lord and remember. And then I'll take the kids back and you do that. Or what is it you're going through right now that is painful? As my counselor likes to say, why do you need that person in your life? And I'm like, I don't want that person in my life. Why do you need that person? What is God getting at in you that needs to go? Siblings, can I just say this? Teenagers, don't plug your ears. I know you think it's your sibling. And it is. And it's not. God has given you that particular sibling and that particular parent and that particular spouse and that particular boss and that particular job because you need it. What is God getting at in you? It's the loving discipline of the Lord. And then secondly... The leaping deliverance from the Lord. This isn't like running from the Lord, being delivered from the Lord, but what God is doing in you through all of this. Look at what David does in response. Does he say, woe is me. I'll just take my medicine. I'll grin and bear it. I'll hide my emotions. I'll not talk to anybody about this. No, over and over, no matter how you see the timeline and chronology here, he cries out to God for mercy. Look at verse 2. Oh Lord, I cried to you for help. I cried to you for help. That was in the past tense. Verses 8 and 10 in the present tense. To you, oh Lord, I cry out. In other words, we never quit crying out for mercy. And I know we want to get to a place where we don't need God's mercy. That's called atheism. That's not Christianity. That's called religiosity, not Christianity. 
And then verse 9, this is uh, unbelievable. What does he do in verse 9? He argues with God like a good lawyer, like your teenagers. I still do this. God, what profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, you lose a worshiper. Who's going who's gonna to praise you from the dust? Literally, it says, it's a commercial word in the Hebrew, a transaction. He's saying, God, this isn't a good investment for you if I die. And what does God... Well, let me just go back to that one quick second. Notice what's happened in David in verse 9, between verses 6 and 7 to verse 9. David went from my mountain to what? God, you lose a worshiper. He goes from self-glorification to God-glorification. That's part of sanctification. When God is taking us through discipline, that is what He's doing. He is changing us. He is taking your mountain and saying, that's a hill of beans. Come to the mount of the Lord and give praise to God. Now, what does God do? God delivers him from his own loving discipline that he has put him under. In verse 1, the word is, draw me up. Isn't that a beautiful, pleasant, just listen to that phrase, he has drawn me up. The first thing I thought of was a, was a parent drawing up their child. But that's not even the image. It's, it's of a, a, a bucket and a well that's way down at the bottom and it's cold. And you turn that crank and you draw up what? Not a bucket, a bucket full of water. He's drawn us up. Verse 2, he heals us. Verse 3, he restores us. John Calvin says that this word again, is more than just physical. Because when you think you're cut off from God, all things go through your mind. When you're under the discipline of God, you begin to think things about God and about others. And you need more than just physical restoration. Think about Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 he quotes... Even though Jesus was the most reformed theologian on the planet, his theology was 100% biblical, right? He believed in God's sovereignty. He was executing that sovereignty, right? And yet, what did he do on the cross? He cried out, why are you forsaking me? If you just said to Jesus any time before the cross, do you know why you're going to the cross? Absolutely. And yet Jesus himself needs his heart restored. So David cries, he argues with God, and God delivers him. He draws him up, he heals him, he restores him emotionally, mentally, physically. And what does he do in response? Look again at verse 4. He becomes a cheerleader. He looks at other Christians and he says, sing praises to the Lord. I know our worship leaders are like, no, he becomes a worship leader. That's what he becomes. He's, he's inviting others to participate in this praise of God. He becomes an evangelist. 
Maybe one reason that we struggle with evangelism is we struggle with the way we see God's deliverance. We so meticulously don't want to break God's law and we're just we're walking on eggshells trying not to break it when we just need to look sometimes and go, we've broken it. Oh God, deliver me. And as you are delivered from God, you absolutely re-experience His grace. And that begins to produce the fruit of righteousness, real righteousness, not a list of things to do and don't do. And then notice what he does, does in verse what he does. What he does in verse five, he teaches us about the character and the nature of God just briefly. Look, his anger is but a moment, literally an instant, the blink of an eye. But his favor is life. Literally, that's what it says. Not a lifetime. His favor is life. Do you see what he's saying there? It's the same thing he says when he says, weeping hangs out at night. It arrives as that overnight guest you didn't know was coming. But joy's coming in the morning. See, what he's saying here is important. Because we need to understand this. Even when we endure the momentary afflictions of life, and especially discipline, we might lose the sense of God's favor. You really might. You might say, God, I don't... It's like the song we sing, I don't sense that you love me right now. But you cannot lose the love and favor of God. Do you see what he says? His anger, that discipline is a moment, but his favor is life. In other words, it does not mean that God doesn't love you anymore. It means that God does love you because you're his child. God's face, the sense of God's face hidden from you does not mean you are undergoing God's judgment and you're losing favor with God. He's saying you can never lose the favor of God. And what discipline does is brings you back to the favor of God. It is the difference between Jesus going to the cross and that was God's judgment and His eternal infinite wrath upon Jesus that was condemnation for sin means that you and I in Christ as God's children, even though we might lose the sense of God's favor, cannot lose God's favor. It was one for you in Christ, you may think you're in the pit. You are not outside of God's love. In other words, there is great profit, isn't there, in the death of Jesus. It means that when God takes us through suffering, it doesn't mean He doesn't love you. It means he does, just like a father or mother disciplines the children they love. I have a friend that reached out to me this week, and he said, can we meet? And he doesn't go to this church, he's a, a biking friend, and he said, I think I'm losing my marriage, can we talk? 
And we sat down over a long lunch, and I mostly ate and listened while he didn't eat much. And he wept and he talked and he explained to me all the hardships and the issues and we talked about communication, we talked about forgiveness, we talked about sin, we talked about what, what the Bible says and doesn't say, and we talked about all sorts of things. But it was one of those things where I felt like, I'm not, I'm not making any headway here. The Holy Spirit, help. I, don't, I, I don't, and then finally just something hit me. I stopped it and I looked at him because I could just hear in his voice this shame and this, this overburdening guilt that he just couldn't measure up in her eyes and do enough. And I asked him, I said, can I ask you a question? What do you think the Lord thinks of you right now? And he said, what do you mean? I said, you're a Christian, right? Absolutely. I said, do you think that in Jesus, God is disappointed with you or delights in you? And his face just took this quizzical turn. And he said, I need to think on that. He texted me later and he said, what was that question you asked me again about what God thinks of me? I said, you will never, ever quit living for your wife's approval and your wife's favor, which is endemic. Is that the right word? It's not healthy for a good marriage. If you're living for her approval. Only if you are absolutely secure in God's love for you in Jesus and the favor that you have, only then can you endure this affliction and love your wife no matter what she does in return even if she leaves you. He's been texting me all week how much that is changing everything about his life. Look, David is learning and teaching us about God's favor. He cries out, God delivers him, he urges others to join in, and he teaches us about the very nature of God. And finally, lastly, verses 11 through 12. How would you sum up these verses? I jotted down, David dances a jig. He leaps for joy. He celebrates. My wife and I listened to songs yesterday going up to the retreat, father-daughter dance songs, because it's coming in September. Another one's getting married, and I got to learn to dance. I'm not a good dancer. David dances. Verse 11, he goes from a funeral to a wedding. Verse 12, literally, my soul sings your praises. You think about David in 2 Samuel 6 when the ark comes back and he's celebrating, he's dancing before the Lord. And Saul's daughter, his wife, goes, what are you doing? You're looking like a fool. He goes, I'll look even more foolish. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. David has gone through the loving discipline of God. He has seen how he's put his hope in insufficient securities. And yet, he comes out the other side dancing 
because of God's deliverance. In fact, the discipline of God has produced in him that which we long for, not that list of rules, but the fruit of righteousness that just wells up and spills over. Let me close by saying a couple things by way of application. Number one, because I know you've already forgotten it, I really, really want you in the next week or two sit down with Psalm 30 and again, if you have small children, honey, take the kids and just sit and say, Lord, help me to remember whether it was how you became a Christian, maybe it was your covenantal parents, maybe you had parents that knew nothing about Jesus and you still came to Christ and remember how God delivered you. Maybe it was that health issue or that death or that time that you didn't have a job for three months. Sit down and remember the Lord's goodness. And finally, by way of application, this teaches us that there is repeated mercy for repeat offenders. I left my phone down there, but I had a quote on there by Luther that said every time Satan comes to you and goes, look at your sin, he goes, yeah, and you don't know the half of it. Look at my Savior. Look at my Savior. See, I think what sometimes gets us is our repeated offenses. We think, no way God is going to forgive us again. You were forgiven at the cross. And the fruit of that righteousness is always yours. Keep, keep being drawn up into that and keep remembering. Oh, I wish we had the Lord's Supper today. But we'll have to wait till next week. Let me pray. God, do not let us forget your glorious salvation, literally drawing us to yourself by grace, forgiving our sins. And Lord, the many, many, many ways that you have continued to deliver us. Lord, if we find ourselves on the brink, please. Heal us and have mercy once again, not just so that we can be relieved, but so that we, O oh God, can relive your goodness and kindness and share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn.